Hi, I'm Mara Webster with In Creative Company, and I'm so excited today to be joined by the wonderful Mike Flanagan to talk all about his latest Netflix series, The Midnight Club, of which he is the creator, showrunner, executive producer, and also director of episodes one and two on the show. And the first thing that I wanted to talk about was, was the atmosphere and the tone of, of this show, because I think one of the things that you always do so brilliantly in every single one of your series is you create this genre of horror that's not about trying to make the audience jump, but it's about this reflectiveness and this atmosphere that really sits beyond the moment that you finish the final episode and yet every single show that you've done has done that in such different ways atmospherically um, and so in the creative process of, of this particular series I was really interested in what that journey looks like in really figuring out the voice and the tone particularly because this is also a, a series with the intention of broadening the audience and and having more of a, a young adult scheme to it but also at the same time being very respectful of their ability to step into this world. Look, that's a great question. Um, we are always trying very hard not to repeat ourselves, just kind of in general. But this one was always different because of the source material, because it was designed to be a YA show, and because it was kind of going back into the world of Christopher Pike, which was how I I discovered genre when, when I was a teenager. Um, so to be honest, I was always very kind of nervous about how to find the tone for this because it was so different from everything else that we tried to do before. Like there was nothing to really fall back on. And the real roadmap we had there was from Christopher Pike, who I think always approached his readers, you know, who were, who were younger readers. He approached them like adults and he expected them to be able to kind of pick up what he was putting down as far as the tension, the themes, some really heavy and violent and dark things that he was putting into these books that we were reading in fourth and fifth grade. Um, but he treated us, you know, as the readers with enough respect to assume that we could, we could grab onto it. And, and we did. Um, so that was something we talked about quite a bit in the beginning was trying to learn as much as we could from his approach to his readers as, as we could translate into the show. But this show has like 10 distinct different tones and because the because the kids are telling their own stories when we switch into one of theirs the tone completely shifts for the show and then has to snap back so that you know most of of the struggle with anything that you make in long form is maintaining a tone and for this show it was jumping in and out of of different ones but having to always come back to the same baseline that that was the challenge for this one and the language in that regard is also really interesting as well, because, you know, you, you've already talked a little bit in, about this show and, and kind of preempting it on how, you know, it doesn't have those really long monologues that something like Midnight Mass had in the same way, because that's not going to work for the audience of, of this series. Um, and it doesn't make sense for the characters. And at the same time, you have these characters who are teenage kids. And at the same time, with what they've gone through, there's a real maturity to them in the way that they understand and see the world around them. And even just the language and the jargon in the medical sphere that they've been exposed to has changed their language and evolved it as well. And so how did you find the very specific nuanced language of what the characters needed to be with both the audience and character in mind? That was a, that was a tough alchemy and it took a room full of writers to figure that out. Um, we were in a weird position where the, the teenage characters in the show had to be more mature than we were and are dealing with things that are more intense than we've ever dealt with for the most part. And, and so, you know, a fair amount of the, of the medical authenticity was helped by Heather Langenkamp, actually, 
who went through all of the scripts and had had enough experience in the hospice world that she was able to help steer us quite a bit into realistic dialogue for Stanton. But for the kids, you know, I guess I, we were helped a little bit by setting it in the 90s because we could talk and have them talk the way I remember talking as a teen in, in the mid 90s. If it was contemporary, I think we would have been doomed. And I think we would have been we would have been realized for the old frauds that we are because, you know, I, I don't have the cadence. I don't have the vocabulary of today's youth. I'm, I've, I'm as much as I wish I did. You know, I'm just I'm too far. I'm too old. So it was it was a little bit of a cheat to go back to the 90s and to be able to say, yeah, this is what we this is what we would say. Um, but luckily, I also had some other writers in the room who um, who were much more connected to to the actual audience that we were targeting, you know, and, and younger writers who were able to say, yeah, this this sounds authentic or Mike, you're insane. No teenager would ever say these words, um, which happened frequently. But uh, but yeah, it took it took a lot of us coming together to try to make uh, to make the voices authentic. And going back to what you were saying before as well about as you're weaving in, in and out of the stories that they're telling, that that's really setting a different tone. It's also creating a very different visual aesthetic in the show as well that you're flowing in and out of. Um, and given that each story has its own identity, you know, in relation to the story that the kid is telling, in relation to the emotional landscape of what that needs to feel like for the audience, um, you know, I was interested in, in particularly in coming in and directing the first two, two episodes and really setting the visual aesthetic, how you navigated that, because at the same time, there's still a linearity of the feel between all of the stories, even with their unique personalities and identities and a linearity going back to the real world of the hospice as well. I felt the most responsible for the hospice. I, I felt like that was where that was where I was actually setting cement on the show. But I, I felt like for my B stories, you know, in, in the pilot, I got to, I was really getting to play. Like we got to do the big, the big jump scare sequence and and that was never going to come back again. So it was like, this is just, this is just a one-off. This is fun. And then the two Danas in episode two was actually the story I wanted to do the most. It was the one I loved the most from, from the original book. What was great was after I put that down, we had this kaleidoscope of directors who came in and the really exciting conversations were about, all right, how are you going to approach your B story? We're all going to try to use the same language in the A story. We're all going to try to set back to that. But, you know, who do you want to emulate? How do you want to change up the language? And to your point, how do we still make it all feel like it's in chorus? Um, and that was really just about having an exciting group of storytellers. It, it really was for us, for, for we directors on the show, it was very much like being in the club. We sat around the table together and we got to tell our side of the story. We got to kind of each sing our own song and we could agree upon the overall characterization that we were dealing with and kind of the baseline that, that we would always have to come back to. But I was very excited to kind of say, okay, what's what's Axel going to be doing with episode seven? I, I know what it looks like on the page, but I can't wait to see how she's going to attack such a cool episode. Um, or Michael Feminari, who is kind of like a brother to me, we've worked together for so long now. You know, he was the one I wanted to handle the classic film noir episode. Um, and he's, you know, started as a DP. So for for me, it was like, I want to see, I want to see how he's going to specifically dig into that world. And he would just start sending me 
titles of classic noirs that he was looking at. And we would just communicate. There was a lot of communicating through the language of movies we loved. There was a lot of talk about like, oh, this is okay. Now we're doing, you know, James Cameron. Okay. Now, now, now we're doing double indemnity, you know? Um, so yeah, it, it really more than any other show I've ever worked on where you have multiple directors and you're trying so hard to get everybody to kind of sound the same. You're, you're trying to really make the voices uniform. This one more than any anything else was really a playground for those filmmakers. And to say you have 25 minutes wherein you can stretch as far away from our established rhythms as you want, as long as you bring the rubber band back to where it started at the end. Um, and that that led to some of the coolest stuff to watch. And it let me just kick back as a fan of these filmmakers and see what they were doing. I love that. And with what you were mentioning as well, in terms of, of the horror and kind of, okay, this is going to be the moment where we have the jump scare. There's a lot of different styles of utilization of, of what that looks like in terms of what is it that the kids are seeing in the hallways or in the basement as well. You know, sometimes it's a shadowy feature. Sometimes it is, you know, a, a, a person who's otherworldly to some degree and we don't necessarily know why, how, or what. Um, and so how do you create that determination of what is it that each character is seeing that, that uniquely they're seeing and what are the different stylistic elements that I want to bring into the show? <clears throat> About half of that battle was in the writer's room, you know, for, for the shadow and, and for specifically the, the mirror man and the cataract woman those were things that we were trying to kind of really paint a picture of in the writer's room so that we could get everybody on the same page. There are very specific reasons why certain characters are seeing certain things. Um, some of which, you know, are revealed in the first season, but a lot of which are not. And, and were, were designed to be answered in, in later seasons if, if that's the way the show goes. I, you know, I don't know if it will. I hope it will because some of those answers are pretty cool. But um, that was <laughs> that was one of the the more interesting things we had to talk about with other directors who came in because they needed to know how this was going to pay off theoretically in seasons that we weren't even filming before they could execute it here and you know they needed to understand the reason why Ilanka is seeing you know this particular image only in in a mirror and this particular image only in the basement and you know all of that had to kind of be spoiled for them but um that's stuff that hopefully will be we'll get a chance to to answer later down the road and you bring up Alonka as a, as a character and she's such a great conduit for the audience because she's the newest person stepping into this space and you also allow her to create these missteps, um, which are so frequent, you know, the fact that when she finds out one of the other kids has AIDS, that she's criticized for the fact that she's about to make a sympathy face. Um, the fact that she mistakes Kevin's girlfriend for his sister on family day because she doesn't know. And so there's this really kind of endearing fallibility that brings the audience in through the way that they may have navigated through the same situation and so how did you want to really utilize her as that conduit for the audience in that way uh, when I think back to my child my teenage years in particular um, I was the kid who made a lot of those mistakes you know I, I remember very vividly the 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 embarrassment of always kind of assuming the wrong thing um, that turned out to be a very common feeling in the writer's room it was something we all remembered from our teenage years very very well um, when you talk about relatability for a character, I, I've always felt like you don't relate 
um, you don't relate to the strengths of a character, not intuitively, or at least I don't, you know, I, I'm much more likely to relate to the fallibility, to the humanity of someone, um, to where, to, to their regrets, to, to their, you know, their blind spots. It's like, those are the areas that I connect with. Um, I think Ilanka in, in the novel was very much set up that way too. She was such the conduit for the reader you know, she was our introduction to the entire thing. And because she was a very, I thought, well-drawn and fleshed out human being, she made the wrong assumptions and she made the wrong decisions, but she always kept trying. And I'd much rather connect with a character who continues to persist despite making mistakes than a character who's perfect or a character who's got the answers. I don't think they make for interesting protagonists, you know? Um, but uh, but yeah, and that's something that Iman Benson embodied beautifully when she arrived in the role. You know, she understood that intuitively. A lot of actors can be afraid of when their characters make mistakes. They don't, they, they conflate it. They don't want to be perceived by the audience as making the mistake themselves. Um, but Iman, you know, tuned in very quickly to that humanity in her and, and leaned into it and for her, it was all about intention. It was that Alonka's intentions were always, always driving her in, in the right direction, whether the decision she made or the assumptions she made were correct or not. I mean, with that, with that same note of the connection and the way that the audiences come into that as well, I also feel like there's a lot of comedic elements in, in this series as well. And you've really crafted it where each of the characters have such a distinctive comedic sensibility. You know, someone like Anya, it's very dry, very biting, very sarcastic, you know, and there's much more of a lightness to Alonka's sense of humor. And, you know, you allow the staff to have a sense of humor as well. And it's a very realistic way that people navigate through traumatic and difficult situations and, and even death, you know, something that we all deal with in a comedic sense to a degree as well um and so how did you find and hone in on what you wanted the comedic aspect of each character to be and how you really wanted to also utilize that as a reprieve to some of the tension at various moments for the audience we were always wanting there to be some levity the the people who we knew and we had people in the writer's room who had had been through this um, had had very serious diagnoses but had ended up in remission or had had family members um, some of whom had died, you know, we were, we were aware very quickly that this wasn't like dealing with vampirism or ghosts. This was dealing with something that an enormous percentage of people deal with every day. Um, we wanted to be authentic and respectful to that. And the importance of humor was something that came up in every conversation that we had. There were times in the writer's room where I'd get nervous and say, I don't want to push the humor too far. I'm afraid that we'll be glib or it'll feel like we're, we're making light of something that's actually very serious. But every time I was afraid of that being the case, the humor actually ended up being of critical importance. And it never hit that point for us where we felt like it had gone too far. If anything, it made it all feel more real. It made it all feel more relatable. And uh, it was something also that uh, Heather Langenkamp was very, very quick to point out as she was going through, you know, was the, the critical importance of, of moments of joy and happiness and, and of not, uh, of allowing, uh, allowing these characters to have enough agency to make a joke at their own expense, to make a joke about their diagnosis, you know, that that was going to be, of critical importance. So um, I'm, I'm relieved if, if it 
if it feels like that balance is there, that's something we were very aware of throughout the process and and wanting to keep keep you know keep just right. It really, really is. And in making a show like this as well, where you have a group of people all grappling with the concept of inevitable death, it's also impossible to make a show like that without there being any conversation about about religion. And obviously it's not something that is, you know, at the epicenter throughout every single episode, but there are moments of it. Um, and particularly coming off the back of making something like Midnight Mass, which was so dense in its exploration of that. Um, how did that inform the worldview that you wanted to bring into this? Or just how did that experience really help you in navigating the way that you wanted to create that as kind of a, a, a theme that's like littered throughout without being the center core of the exposition. I, I did feel like we had done the deep dive, you know, in, in Midnight Mass and that um, I, I didn't think this show benefited from any moment where the characters would sit and say, what happens when we die and talk it, talk it out you know, more than anything, these were characters who were going to act it out, who were going to say, what happens when we die? We're about to find out. And um, for certain characters like Sandra, you know, religion is is a very important part of that. And it became more important, the different things that people use to um, to cope, to, to lean on, um, to heal, you know, to to grapple with these real life situations, the religion, the various you know medical options, the um, the various uh, medically kind of vague options, things you know the the teas and the the, uh, the 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 more untraditional treatments and things like that. It was all part of different ways people would approach mortality, especially when it's immediate. Um, religion was a part of that, but it wasn't the heart of it for this story and for these characters. And it became more important to deal with, you know, to deal with elements of faith in a way that wasn't about dissecting religion, but was more about dissecting hope. Um, more than any other characters I've ever written, the kids in this story are way more invested in what is or isn't likely to happen to them in the afterlife because it's a semester away at the most, you know, how they would approach it meant that everything kind of had to be on the table, but that nothing could take center stage unless it happened to for one of these characters. And I think Ilanka is the one who comes closest to pushing the group into one idea. Um, and it's not the right one, you know, um, but that that exploration, that that willingness to pick it up and put it back down was always important. <laughs> I just it just never felt like this was going to be the show where where someone would explain it that this was going to be the show more where someone would be out there trying to find it and we'd, we'd get to watch the journey instead of hear the hear the the thought you know and with with the fact that like as you said they there is this kind of trajectory of discovery and and questioning certain things and hopefulness each character really does go through such a self-reflective journey and such an evolution throughout the series in very different ways and you know if you take Anya as as one of those examples she's such a fantastic character we get to see this very abrasive character at the beginning and then we really see her walls come down in such a beautiful way but at the same time she still feels completely tied to the version that we 
met at the beginning of episode one when Alonka first comes into the room and she's like, who are you? You know, get out of my space. And that's very much the, the vibe that she's giving off. Um, and, and I think you're always so great at really servicing every single character within an ensemble. So is that very much, again, very heavy discussions in the writer's room? And do you do anything where you're kind of doing singular passes, where you're just doing a single character pass just to make sure that there is that reflective journey for each person? Absolutely. And, and we do it exactly like that. We'll do a week on each character individually. We'll make sure that we get their journey into a place we feel good about. And, you know, we had we had several elements on this that helped us in that what characters did exist in, in Pike's novel came with a wonderful roadmap. And Anya is probably the one closest to, to what she is on the page from Pike. So he gave us a lot to work with. But the other incredible element for a show like this is casting. And Anya on the page and Anya in the hands of Ruth Codd are two very different things. Um, and all of all of our actors did this. They they all came in, took what was there and lifted it up and said, OK, I'm going to make this mine. I'm going to make it feel authentic to me in my experience. And because a lot of our actors, this is their first job or their second job, they didn't come with the baggage of having spent years on a network show or, or you know, spent years and years in acting class kind of being whittled into this familiar approach. You know, for Ruth in particular, this was her first time acting. And so she came at it raw and the Anya that she created is not anything we ever could have expected or written. You know, she, she brought her to life in a way that surprised everyone who was in the writer's room. The same happened with with all of them. You know, the the Alonka that we wrote is not the Alonka that Iman brought. I much prefer the one Iman brought. Um, you know, Spence on the page was one thing, but Spence in Chris's hands a whole different thing. Um, Sorian Sakoda, who I think the world of you know turned a mesh into a character that could have been kind of abrasively nerdy on the page and made him so endearing. Um, you know, Adia, uh, we did a, we, the last character pass we did was, was for Cherie. And we went through the entire season very late in the game, making sure we got her arc just right. And Adia, you know, delivered a scene stealing performance, I think in that part, but that was also not the character we ever imagined on the, you know, on the board. So, yeah, I, I think between Pike's blueprints and the cast, there were a number of surprises for us. And I always feel like, if I'm delightfully surprised by a character, by a performance, by an actor, then the odds of the audience being pleasantly surprised increase. Um, so this, this was a unique opportunity in that we got to work with a lot of people who really were completely kind of unspoiled by other jobs um, before this, that were coming into this from a place that was so fresh and so distinctly their own, um, it was a it was a real sense of discovery every day of seeing how they looked at it in a way that was different, you know, than than we did in the room or any other actor I think would have. And within the service of all these characters as well, there's um, a real challenge to give us the idea of, you know, what was their home life? What was their family life? What was their life before they ended up in the hospice? But in a setting where they're not sitting around talking about that all day because they don't need to have that conversation again and again with one another. They've 
probably already had that before Alonka even arrived. Um, and I thought that the the family day is such a great conduit for these very short moments where we learn so much, you know, and it also explores the idea of, of going through the inevitability of losing your child for family members as well, you know, seeing, um, I think it was uh, Kevin's parents, you know, really pushing running track on his younger brother because they want yeah. his legacy to continue in him. Or what does it mean that Spencer's mom isn't showing up and she's got a cold again, but she gets a cold every week and is never there because she's with her church group. Um, and so how did you want to use the idea of allowing parents and allowing family members into the bubble of the hospital, but in a way that's very judicious and gives us just enough information without trying to over-explain everything? The the element of this story that I've had the hardest time wrapping my head around is the perspective of the parents. Um, and that's because I'm a parent. And, and so I, I try to imagine what it would take for me to drop my child off at a place like this and drive away. Um, and that used to, I used to fixate on that. And it used to be a thing. I was like, we have to dig into it. We have to understand it. Um, and it took me a little longer than maybe it should have to realize the show's not about the parents. And that, you know, places like this really exist. Um, we only needed to know what the kids would think is important for us to know about it. And the family day idea was something that was pitched in the writer's room as exactly what you described as a way for us to rapid fire, you know, just dip our heads into the room for enough of the conversation to glean the context. But then to get back to where the real story was, which was with these young characters. Um, the family day mechanism, I think, I hope works really well for that because in a lot of my other work, I would say you need to spend enough time with each member of, of the family to understand. You need to, you need to give screen time in order to really tell that story. We just realized early enough that the stories outside of Brightcliff only were important in so much as they contextualized what would happen inside. And family day gave us just enough for that. But, um, but yeah, I, it was very tempting to just deep dive into everybody. We talked about a, an origin story for everyone of flashing back to see each character's diagnosis and, and how they wrestled with it, how their families dealt with it, how they got there. But it all felt like that was all just spinning our wheels to take us back to where we started in the pilot and that we couldn't advance the story if we kept looking back. So really Alonka was the only way in there. And with the fact we were touching on the character of, of Anesh, I, I love that moment where essentially he's reached what was going to be his death day. And there's kind of this, this ritualistic celebration of that and what it feels like to go through that facing the day that you were supposed to be dead by, but knowing that the inevitable outcome is still going to be death. Um, and so how did you want to go through navigating and exploring that, that sort of emotional trajectory? Because I, I can't think of anything else where I've really seen it explored in that way before. It was something that was talked about from a lot of real life anecdotes um, in the writer's room of people who had, had been through situations like that, either directly or indirectly and seen people who have lived beyond the proposed, you know, expiration date. It was a fascinating idea. Um, and it opened up this idea of how any of us would live uh, if we had thought that yesterday was going to be the end and every day was this gift, every day was this surprise, how different the world would look, you know? Um, and for all of the characters, it felt like a mesh was the one who would embrace that in the most interesting way. Um, 
and to try to and to try to be funny about it, you know, to try to to try to find the humor in the fact that his expiration date had already passed. Um, but it's it's a, a side of it's a side of mortality that I think is really interesting and in how speculative all of those prognoses can be. You know, the the guesses, it's all just guesses, you know, the guesses of how long you could live, what the the range is, you know, we're all just guessing day to day, whether the prognosis is six months or just the that ultimate question mark where we have no idea what to expect um, to have kind of gone beyond what ends up being this kind of surreptitious line in the sand we thought was really interesting. And going back to that idea of really using the genre of horror as as a ability to create a self-reflectiveness as people are watching it, um, I, I wanted to ask about the different ways in which you really sought out to have that occur in this series, because there's a lot of different dynamics at play, whether it's, you know, when Kevin comes back from prom and they all immediately know that everybody would have just spent the whole night telling him how brave he is. That's a reflectiveness back to the audience. Um, the different conversations and the different ways that, like you said, they're approaching this question of how much time is left and, and what that looks like and how they want to navigate their own path through death, again, is, is a self-reflectiveness back to the audience. And so in the in the writer's room in those conversations that you were having again how did you go forth in in talking about and using these characters as a tool not only to explore the world within the show but also as a reflection back towards the audience as they watch it no a lot of the the assumptions that we thought the audience would make you know are there because we made them um and a lot of those things when we talk about kevin going to prom and and we'd say that you know I wouldn't necessarily know how to interact with someone who I, I had known and in high school, you know, with, with that kind of diagnosis, but that our instinct would be to, to go out of our way to tell them how brave they are, or, you know, to, to relate the other one that resonated with me a lot was that, you know, they talk about how he got compared to, you know, other people or even animals in people's lives who had been diagnosed with something um, because people don't often, not not everyone has a, a true, you know, point of reference for that, and so we we would fall into those rhythms in the writers' room sometimes, and sometimes on purpose, just to say like, well, I I would fuck this up by saying it this way, or by approaching it this way. I I assume a lot of viewers may have the same thing, you know. What's a gentle and fun way to to acknowledge that and to keep pushing past it, and to surprise ourselves and 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 the viewers at the same time. Um, but yeah, it was, it was a lot of, I think, experimentation in the writer's room. It was a lot of putting things up there and, and then reacting to each other. Well, I really, really love hearing all of these details. It's one of these things where I just finished the final episode a few hours ago, but I know that for the next several days, you know, like all your work, I'm going to continue unpacking and thinking about it in the way that I always do. So thank you so much for talking about it and sharing all of this. Really appreciate it, Mike. Oh, of course. It's been a total pleasure. Thanks for watching.